the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is a highly respected leader in the communications field, Larry Kamer. Larry is a founding partner of the Kamer Communications Group, based in Northern California and serving the world. Just as peers rate the top as doctors' doctors or lawyers' lawyers, he's recognized as a communicator's communicator. When there's a high-stakes challenge, a public crisis that could decide the future of a company, Larry Kamer is the person to call. He has more than 30 years of experience as a communications consultant, an executive in international marketing and communications firms, a political advisor, and entrepreneur. He's also a gifted educator, including service as an adjunct professor of practice in the master's program at the University of San Francisco. Larry Kamer, it's a delight to welcome you today. Jim, it's always good to talk to you. Larry Kamer, we're living in crisis times. Not just a crisis here and there, but a pandemic, financial uncertainty, economic instability, political division. So the world is beating a path to your door. How do you help us to understand what crisis communications entail and why they matter? Well, I think you can answer that question a lot of different ways. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing that I'm struck by in these times is how how much of our thinking about crisis management and crisis communications has to change based on this particular, and it's beyond a crisis, it's, you know, it's a catastrophe. Um, you know, the, the old ways of thinking about crisis management assumed a couple of things that are not in evidence right now. We assume that, um, that leaders would actually like to solve the problem. It's not clear to me that, that the people at the top, certainly in our country, are most interested in solving the problem. Um, it's assumed that leaders um, want to provide helpful information to uh, stakeholders uh, so they can make informed decisions about their lives and their health. That is not happening with any consistency. And we assume that leaders will use the levers of power that they that they have their hands on uh, to align things in an extraordinary way to to bring the crisis to a close. And I don't think we've seen that here either. So my first takeaway from this is when this is over and when we begin to draw lessons from it, I think we're going to have to completely rewrite the playbook that we've all become kind of used to. Uh, in crisis management. So when you talk about crisis communications, you meld immediately into management and leadership, mixing them into one unified well, strategy. Could you uh, tell us about that and what your thinking is underneath that? Well, I draw, I mean, I think the better part of crisis management is crisis communications, right? You, you, I think we've seen time and again organizations that have responded well to a crisis but communicated badly and have been harshly judged 
Um, on the flip side, you know, the, the classic case is Mayor Giuliani after September 11th, where, uh, you know, kind of he was in many ways making it up as he went along, but because he was such an effective communicator at that time, um, he got high marks. So I, I do draw a distinction between leadership and management, just as you know better than most. Um, you know, the, the, the characteristics that make a leader a leader and the uh, skills that, that make a manager a manager, and they're not necessarily the same thing. It's very interesting that you talk about the crisis after 9-11. We, in the year 2020, we're on the 80th anniversary of the Winston Churchill premiership in Great Britain, which began on May 10th in response to the horrific situation posed by Hitler's invasion of the West. Are there still lessons from that time to also think about, or is that so far different and gone that not really? What is your take? I think it's. I think Churchill's example is timeless, and because as and we learn more as more time passes, right? From from students and authors like you and others who, you know, we learn more over the years and we think about things um, differently. I just finished reading the Sacred and the Vile. Uh, which I highly recommend. This is about Churchill's um, first year in office. And, um, you know, here's a very human person who in a lot of ways was washed up, um, was turned to almost in desperation, and um, suffered, you know, from, from depression and other, you know, financial stresses and other things. And yet he he rose to this incredible challenge because he would not leave the audacious goal of um, not only defending England, but beating Germany and beating the Axis. So I don't see how that story ever gets old. And I and I am one of those people who does whatever I can to kind of keep it alive. And I know that you're deeply committed to using history. What would you say to other people who might say, well, that's great for 1940? But in 2020, the world's just too different. Yeah, well, the world is, it is very different. But, um, you know, I'm sure that in, in Great Britain, there's probably a lot being written about the comparisons between Boris Johnson and, and Churchill, right? I mean, every, I guess every British prime minister has to live in that shadow one way or another. Um, but, it, you know, it. this is like the debate over, you know, truth and facts. You know, yes, they are still relevant, even though people would like, some people would like to deny them, just as history is still relevant, even though there are some who would like to deny that, too. So crises define people. Certainly crises like the United States and the world find ourselves in in 2020 with COVID and the aftermath. And, of course, very much in the early part of it though it may feel like the late part to some already. How do you think crises define people or groups or generations? I think at the, at the individual level and at the <clears throat> kind of institutional corporate level, um, they serve as a public x-ray of what you really, you know, what you're really made of inside. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. The, um, 
you know, when you strip away one's image, reputation, um, you know, all the things that we work very hard to convey to the world, whether it's our brand, our company, um, our, our leadership persona, when you crises tend to strip all that away and show you for what you really are, and and I think you know whether it's stakeholders or voters or shareholders, they have shown how disappointed and angry they get when they see someone different than the person they thought they knew. So I I think that's the biggest defining thing is that you know you can try and spin it, but ultimately the crisis is going to show you for what you really are. Is that because it's viewed as eliminating character, a question of trust, or is it something else? I, I think crises demand a lot of things that, that leaders are good at. Um, you know, the ability to make um, informed decisions that are... Um, you know, that take into account what we know and what we don't know and what our biases are. Um, the ability to really understand and put risks in perspective. The, the, the understanding and belief that crises create opportunities for leadership. And what I think is the most important trait in a, in a leader in crisis is the ability to make decisions quickly, even with imperfect information. And that, to me, is says everything about character. You know that you, yes, of course, we don't have perfect information, and in some crises, we never will have perfect. Even when they're long gone, we'll never know what caused them. But um, in the meantime, you have to get in there, take the helm, make decisions, and um, adjust course if your first, uh, you know, if your first efforts were not successful. One of the aspects of that is the leader's capacity in crisis to craft and convey a narrative that others will join. Right. Churchill certainly did that in the most extraordinary way. Franklin Roosevelt in that era did much the same, and others. How do you think about that? I, I think about the. I think that that crises provide windows for leaders to lead. And, and let's just take a look at what they're about. So, you know, every crisis is a period of high threat and uncertainty, and a leader's job is to try and bring things back to normal. You know, to, to point that ship of state in the right direction and say, we are getting back to a, a better place, a, a more normal place. Um, crises are really complex, and as we're all feeling right now, they with COVID, feels like there's no bookend. It's just, you know, it's like infinity. It's going on. Mm -hmm. What leaders can do is simplify things, simplify that complexity, and set an expectation. You know, I watch. I, I think there are four U.S. governors that have done a very, very strong. Uh, have done a very, very good job. Two Democrats, two Republicans. Uh, you know, there would be uh, Hogan in Maryland, DeWine in Ohio, uh, our own Governor Newsom, and, and Governor Cuomo. And I think if you look at every one of them, um, they try and set some expectations about what's going to happen next, even if it's not very good news, even if it's going to be longer than 
you know, than we'd like. And the most important thing is they, it, they have the opportunity to show that somebody's in charge. You know, we need to have somebody in charge who we can trust or at least uh, seems to be uh, pointing the ship in the right direction. So let's bring that back to your other point about how people today with current technologies, they're on 24-7. So, for example, if one of those governors that you mentioned were to take some disappointing action on their own time or in a public situation, or let's say they didn't follow their own quarantine or something like this, that could be devastating to what they're up to. How do you think about that? And how do you advise, say, in the corporate sector, CEOs to be thinking about this? Because so many of them did not come of age where that was the case. That was something that politicians had to worry about, but not necessarily corporate leaders. Yeah, I think look, leaders set they set all they send all kinds of cues and all kinds of messages, right? And a big part of that, if you're going to use your kind of face mask example, is you know that visual cue, that visual message that somebody will make your mind will make a decision about in in a millisecond, you know, as to how you feel about that. And I'd point to the current, you know, there's a whole discussion now about. Um, the president's not wearing a face mask, but the vice president is. I mean, ultimately, is that really going to make a difference, or is it more about the message that it's sending about how seriously we're taking this or whether our leaders are really engaged in the right pursuits? One reason that crises emerge is because people in high positions sometimes are not equipped to recognize what's coming. Because in retrospect, one can always find evidence for things that were surprising at the time, but you realize in retrospect, there was a string of things, but they weren't being looked at at the level of priority one might have thought in retrospect and so on. And if you look at the highest level, let's say US presidents, you can go back certainly to Woodrow Wilson, who commented as he went into office about what an irony it would be if foreign affairs were to become the defining issue, then all of a sudden he's headed toward World War One and a tragic end. Herbert Hoover, who is renowned as a tremendous business leader and what we now call a not-for-profit leader, who faltered you know, terribly as a leader in the Depression, and you can go through Vietnam, all these presidents who created or occasioned crises in part of their own doing or certainly in areas they weren't really equipped for as their top skill set. So how do you deal with people like that? Because that's a problem anybody could have. Well, I'll, uh, I'll allude to another president, not so great president, but, you know, Calvin Coolidge said, no man ever listened himself out of a job, right? So... <laughs> The ability to acknowledge that other people know more than you do, even though you have this this exalted and very powerful position, I think is key. Um, and I think, you know, look, we have an example now of a president who I don't believe, who I, I think believes he knows more than everybody else about everything else. And that's a, it's kind of an exaggeration in a way, but, you know, you contrast that to to people who surrounded themselves with the best and the brightest or with, um, you know, the, uh, um, 
you know, friendly foes around them, people who were not willing, who were, who were willing to state their point of view and, and have decisions influenced by that. So I guess that's the, the top thing I would say is a little bit of humility, uh, even though you, you wield uh, great power and influence. It, you're not God. Um, you know, there are others, no matter, it, it, even the President of the United States will come into a room where there are smarter people than he is, than he, than he. Absolutely. That's well said. And let's get your take, Larry Kamer, on some current issues that are likely to recur in this pandemic and the economic and financial turbulence we're now in. One, a CEO of AT&T was reported to have just retired to a $274,000 per month retirement. Two, Uber fired 3,500 employees reportedly during a three-minute Zoom call. By contrast, Airbnb CEO went to great lengths to explain the firings and provide a safety net and so on. How do you think about these kinds of actions? Are they really not that important or are they? Oh, I think they're, I think they're critically important. You know, the, the, other, um, the other piece of the Uber story that I had read was that uh, employees had, had also had offered up the opportunity of taking pay cuts to save their jobs, and uh, they, that request was ignored. You know, look, ultimately, uh, and I'm working with a lot of clients who are going through layoffs, furloughs, you know, figuring out PPP and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, most important thing for any business person is I need to keep this business viable. I need to keep it from going under um, in the face of this crisis that we were, were not prepared for, right? I think that's the other lesson here is just how unprepared we were for something that we had so many warnings about. But that's a separate discussion. Um, so, yeah, I think these are defining moments for these for these men and women. Um, and I think reasonable people understand that that business leaders' responsibility is to protect and, and help their business thrive, and that layoffs uh, or reductions are inevitable part of that of that up and down cycle. But it's how you do it and how you treat human beings as human beings that I think uh, says a lot, you know, says everything about those people are. A few quick takes, uh, a few quick questions for your take, Larry Kamer. One is on the role in a crisis communication situation. How does one balance optimism and realism in communicating with various stakeholders? It's how you deal with every other kind of cognitive bias, right? We, we all come into uh, decision-making, high-pressure decision-making situations with, with, with biases, uh, whether, you know, it's, um, you know, you can be overly positive, you can be overly negative. So I, I think self-awareness is really important we all come from someplace. We all come from different family, geographical, religious, cultural backgrounds, and they imbue certain uh, they imbue us with certain biases. It doesn't make us bad people, but it means that we have to be 
crystal clear about what those biases are and if we're being too optimistic or too pessimistic you know we've got to be able to check the best decision makers I think are the people who can check themselves and ask others you know honestly is this does this make sense to you or do you think I'm being too too optimistic or you know um, uh, too hasty or, or whatever a related question is how to be appropriately conveying urgency but not to begin to move into alarmism I realize those aren't entirely definable distinctions but what is your thought on that I think COVID is going to teach us some very important lessons about that because you see that even days mattered that 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 certain states and countries that waited even a day or two or a week uh, dealing with very similar circumstances as other states and countries the numbers are are astonishing you know just how fast things took off and how and and by contrast how how effectively they could have been arrested had they had they acted sooner so I think we'll see graphic evidence um, that that hours matter that days matter um, listen a, a lot of times these are just covers for people who are just don't want to make decisions they'll say well I don't want to you know I don't want to um, cause a panic or you know we can't do that or we'll get sued um, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in meetings with executives or lawyers and I just have to tell them you know dude you're gonna get sued anyway you did a really a really bad thing happened here on your watch and nothing you do now is gonna keep you from getting you know getting sued or investigated but I think the bias toward action um, well, well again I'll quote a, a great president Franklin Roosevelt you know he said imperfect action beats perfect inaction and I think that's especially true in a crisis so let's think about uh, that a little more so when you deal with CEOs facing crises are there common errors or misunderstandings they tend to have when you first come to them there are a few um, one of them is um, and, and this is especially true when you're dealing with younger companies startups um, people with really hot new ideas um, there's this sense that hey man we 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 got ourselves here we figured out how to do how to change the world by doing X we can sure as hell deal with a crisis when it comes along and you know of course what we see is even when we've had these kinds of crises before and this one COVID has a precedent probably more than one precedent um, and even when we've done um, planning and even if we've gone so far as to do simulations um, we ignore all that information thinking that you know that our smarts and our uh, hubris will carry us through so that's a that's a big one the second is how do you strike a balance of your you know kind of cabinet your crisis cabinet who's going to help you get through this you want to get representation from around let's say it's a company from around your company legal operations technology security and so on but you also want to keep that group as small as possible because they 
they have to make decisions. And so a good leader, I think, is going to know how to strike that balance and is going to know, and I'll, I'll give you a third example. I, I had met with one CEO in the midst of a big, um, big legally driven problem who said he was just going to run the whole crisis response himself, you know, for thought. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people, especially the lawyers, tried to convince him that you need other perspectives here. As good as you are as a CEO, that does not make necessarily make you uh, a good crisis manager. Now, when you're in crisis and make mistakes at a high level, people lose jobs, they might get killed if you're in government, and so on. But as you say, too, some mistakes are inevitable, all the more because you're acting in very fast, real-time situations. Often they appear unprecedented in the moment, or at least one's unprepared for it. How do you counsel people through mistakes they make in the midst of a crisis? Well, you know, once you realize you're you're driving down the wrong road, you know, you don't you don't want to hit the gas, right? You don't want to keep doubling down on on decisions from a game plan that isn't working. So the ability to acknowledge that um, plan A is not working means, of course, you have to have a plan B and hopefully a plan C, but but not not take it as an ego blow if you say, you know, that didn't work, acknowledge that it didn't work, and, and you know, go to plan B. Um, you know, again, we have 50 different plan A's now with COVID because of the, you know, the devolution of power to the governors. At least I think that's what, what has happened. Um, and, it, it, you know, we, we, have a, we have the opportunity to exert strong, central, coordinating leadership, and, um, and it is not working. And and, and I think the, the most frustrating thing is there is no acknowledgement or humility that it's not working uh, and no um, willingness to say, let's go to plan B. Let's talk about a related question that might be called crisis fatigue, both by, let's say, a CEO or a public official all the way to a president or crisis fatigue on the part of the rest of us, those of us who are dealing with the situation. How do you think about that? I mean, Franklin Roosevelt and Churchill, again, not to idealize them, but they do stand for high performance in this field. And they each, for example, were very disciplined about looking ahead to the future so people would see what's coming after the war finally would end, and well before the war was ending. And they also took great care with their own regimens, both in terms of discipline and also uh, recreation. Yes. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the more admirable things about Franklin Roosevelt is, no matter what, there was a martini at five o'clock, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Churchill was no stranger, you know, to the, uh, to the bottle either. I'm not condoning that, but I think what we have to recognize that every crisis situation is really stressful, and um, and it's solved. And every crisis situation is solved by human beings, and human beings become even more human when they're stressed. They they manifest physical, emotional, social. Um, 
people who are leading, who are, are planning for a crisis response, leading crisis teams, have to understand that that human uh, side of things has to be dealt with. You know, whether it's just, all right, everybody, you know, get up, let's go out in the parking lot, we're going to stretch now, or, you know, you've been, wor- Jim, you've been working here 18 straight hours, you're the best one I've got, but you have to go home, because you're going to be worthless to me, you know, if you fry your fry your brain. Um, so let's acknowledge that human beings are human beings, and there's, there's two things you have to do about that. The first is, uh, give people training to revert to, no matter how emotional the situation or high stakes the situation is. You know, as people in the military and law enforcement and others, you know, they revert to training. Give people the kind of training that becomes more automatic to them, but also acknowledge that humans are humans and we need to uh, accommodate those human needs so that that crisis fatigue doesn't begin to be truly counterproductive or even dangerous. Let's talk about another issue that's easily overlooked in a crisis, particularly because a crisis has, at some point, a definition to it that has a beginning and an end. But during that crisis, other things can be metastasizing. So, for example, right now, while the COVID virus challenge is ongoing, the deforestation in the Amazon rainforest this year has hit record levels. Our attention's elsewhere. Similarly, in Hong Kong, the public demonstrations had been brought to a halt at a very convenient time for the Chinese communist regime. Likewise, in France, the Yellow Vest movement is crippled for the time being during quarantine. How do you get people who are caught up in a crisis at the senior level to also be looking at things that may be going on that don't require their maybe top level attention, but if they're left unattended to, could create grave problems down the road? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I would, I would look at it two different ways. One thing that I've, you know, I've had a lot of time to read and study, um, which is, I think, one of the one of the few uh, bright spots of of uh, you know this very strange life we're all living uh, for the last few weeks. But you have to understand there, and you read authors like uh, Naomi Klein or Rebecca Solnit, and they talk about this tendency of, of governments to want to seize power in crisis, you know, and whether whether that's uh, for dark reasons or whether that's just because of where they go. So I think you have to understand there's a very real, you know, when you're talking about Hong Kong or Paris, um, it's a very real thing that that um, some people will use a crisis situation to um, exert more kind of authoritarian control. Fine. That's a real thing. Advising people, this is what you have to have that that good cross-section of advisors around the table who are looking to solve the crisis and not looking to agree with each other, you know, to avoid the group think scenario. Um, You know, and create an environment where if Jim Strzok's got a very different point of view and thinks we're all wrong, he can say it and he can defend it and that will be respected. It's not going to get him thrown out of the room. Like George Ball in Vietnam a lifetime ago. 
yeah. who dared to bring up a few questions and found himself on the outside immediately. And you'll find no better examples of, you know, of uh, groupthink than the way that this played out in, in the Johnson administration, where, you know, they, the assumption was we're going to win the war and there's really no other way to do it. And those who said no, uh, we're not going to win the war, or maybe we ought to have other objectives here, as you say, we're, we're kind of drummed up. Well, experience is the best teacher, and I guess mistakes are the best teacher of all, but they can be pretty expensive if one's at a senior level for the people one's serving. So how do you suggest that people who want to serve effectively in a positional role or elsewhere in a crisis, how should they prepare? There's not a school for crisis particularly, is there? And what do you do? Well, there, there's, you know, there's... There are so many resources available to us. We just have to just look for them uh, and and understand them. There have been so many corporate crises, so many governmental crises, um, institutional crises that have been written about and studied and put into books and are available to us online either as case studies or even crisis plans, even if you want a generic crisis plan, go online, you can find tons of them. So there's no lack of information out there. The, the issue is, um, are you going to open your mind to learning, to using it and learning it? Um, you know, we know that, that our learnings about things like crises come in, in a lot of different ways. Living through one is the most painful way. Studying them and planning for them is another way simulating and testing them is another way. Adjusting our plans from what we learn in those tests is another way. So I always tell my students there's, there is no excuse not to be prepared. The resources are there. And it's probably, and the crisis you're thinking about has probably happened to somebody else uh, many times before. There's always a precedent. Larry Kamer, a few questions about your work in life. Uh, as a writer and as a teacher and as a consultant and executive, you're an educator. What do you seek to impart to young people, such as those you teach at the University of San Francisco and elsewhere, who are in their 20s, for example, as they prepare for the future in this highly uncertain time? Um, you know, it's kind of the bitter with the sweet, right? So the bitter part is Crises are inevitable. They're just inevitable. In your career, you are going to have to deal with a really uh, terrible situation in which there may be deaths involved or environmental damage or you know, huge um, uh, economic damage that you should, you should expect that in your career this is going to happen to you more than once. And so you know, don't shy away from it. Uh, understand that these situations, as perilous as they are, also provide you opportunities to manage well and to lead and to even lead. Um, so part of what you're saying almost sounds like it's melding inevitably into clinical psychology, at least to this extent. How would you advise those young people if they were to ask you, well, how do I come back if what I've done and doing the best I can in a responsible position 
led to people being harmed or even killed or financially harmed or ruined or what if they're betrayed by someone they trusted how do you see that they can prepare themselves for those kind of challenges and to be able to bounce back from it to be resilient yeah well you know you mentioned one of the other kind of truths of of crises is that they're very they play with your emotions and and in some cases just you know crack you um, because they're so intense. If you sit there and think about, like, what are the stakes of my doing this wrong? Um, I think, it, you know, it's like, if I'm going to have heart surgery, you know, I want to go to the doctor who does like, you know, who's done like 40,000 of them, right? You want to get yourself as experienced, even if it, you're not going through the real thing, by reading and studying and simulating and planning uh, that's all you can do. You know, you don't, you don't, I can't think I read a quote the other day where somebody said, you know, the middle of the crisis is not the time to be exchanging business cards. So, <laughs> if, so if you're in an organization uh, and you're charged with, with preparing for crisis or being part of the crisis response, um, you got to be thinking about it a lot. You can't just push it off into a corner because it's unpleasant. Um, it, it, it's got to be something that, that good communicators in organizations, I think, have this role of keeping it front and center, not overwhelming people you know, with it, but just saying, you know, it's time for us to do another tabletop exercise, or it is time for us to bust out that crisis plan that's been sitting around for a couple of years and, and bring it up to date. Um, and that's hard. People would, you know, this is about the last thing people want to have to deal with in peacetime. But I think we see how important it is to be um, kind of in shape, you know, for the next crisis. You know, one of the fascinating things about your point that comes into my mind is how some of the leaders you've mentioned earlier, Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, this would also apply to Theodore Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson, that generation they studied history, they wrote history. So they literally felt that they were part of something far bigger than themselves in that sense, as well as in their work. And I wonder to what extent that ought to be considered as something that we ought to reemphasize again for the future. What do you think? I think the pendulum swung way away from that. You know, we are we are in an era now where um, you have these so-called populist leaders whose reference point is themselves and, you know, themselves or kind of immediate gratification at the polls where there's no real need or even acknowledgement of the importance of precedent for history. I have a feeling that after COVID, um, there's going to be a lot of collective questions asked about why, you know, why didn't we take the lessons of this before? Could we have mitigated the devastating impacts of this and the economic damage and just the inconvenience that, that we're all living through? Um, would we have done better had we looked at the, uh, the way other, others had handled this elsewhere? Because this isn't the first pandemic that the world has ever dealt with. Would we have done better had we looked at the plans or the uh, recommendations that others who had looked into this problem had given us. So 
I, I I do feel like this reliance on kind of you know one single leader knowing everything. Uh, I I really do see that as getting questioned. Certainly in our country, and maybe in some of the other places in the world that have that have fallen for this, um, you know, this kind of uh, populist approach. Well, one of the positive things about COVID, hopefully it will turn out to be, but we see early signs, is the extraordinary capacity that the digital world gives people around the world and in, in countries who had never been connected this fast in real time to put their heads together. And that's got to be a very positive harbinger and something we can build upon. I keep thinking about what would have happened had had this crisis occurred, say, 25 years ago or 20 years ago, where we're not connected, um, you know, we're not connected electronically. Uh, we don't have access to, you know, all kinds of information uh, via the Internet and, you know, libraries and studies. Um, what if we had to educate our kids at home and there was no distance learning? Um, you know, what if we... Um, had to read in the newspaper at the end of the day what had happened in the you know in the previous business day uh, and couldn't take any action uh, you know adjusting for that time lag so I do agree with you that there is a uh, we are our ability to be smart is greatly enhanced but I'd be remiss if I didn't say our ability for mischief has also been greatly enhanced uh, because that same social media, unfettered, um, is such an effective uh, uh, carrier of deliberately false information or, um, you know, information that is clearly political in nature and not problem-solving in nature. Excellent points. And let's look at the history again of your own life, Larry Kamer, and you often, you're teaching these spectacular young people Let's picture Larry Kamer at age 20. If you could do so today, what would you tell that young man? Oh, boy. Uh, I don't know that he'd listen to any advice from anybody. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe he would listen to advice from his older self. So 20, I'm, I'm still in college. I was, very, uh, I was very passionate about politics. That was my thing you know, back then. Um, I, I think the things you learn as you get older and you can only this only comes with age are you know my 20 year old self I imagine your 20 year old self really did feel like we could push any boulder up any hill um, and the people who told us we couldn't we ignored them um, your ability to push the boulder up the hill as you get older uh, changes um, that's the first thing I would say. The other thing is, one of the one of the real signs of adulthood that I, that I talk to my students about is the ability to say goodbye to things before you're really ready to do so. In other words, as you get older, people in your life are going to die. Relationships are not going to work out. Jobs are not going to work out. Um, you know, you may invest in something that doesn't, you know, that you, where you lose money. Um, we have a process by which we'd like to work through those problems, but I think one of the signs of adulthood is 
uh, you got to know how to say goodbye to something way before you're ready or before you think you're ready to do so. Any tips you have on that widespread challenge? On which, Jim? I'm sorry. On how would you tell us more of this? That's a great point, Larry, about uh, moving past defeats or losses or defunct relationships or understandings. But how do I do that psychologically? What can you tell me to help me do that? If they would say, I can't help it. I keep thinking about it. Well, we're, we're dealing with this in real time. You know, I have a, a you know, I've just finished teaching a crisis uh, management course uh, at, at University of San Francisco, which has been online since March. And, you know, the good news is, thank God, uh, I've been teaching using Zoom for a long time. Um, I know one of the dirty little secrets in the academic world is just how unprepared how many professors were um, to to teach using distance learning tools. Um, <clears throat> and a lot of them really, really complained about it. Like, I can't possibly teach this course unless I'm sitting there, you know, watching my students' reactions, reading the room, and so on. Um, well, guess what? You don't have any choice. You're, you're going to have to learn how to do this. Um, so I think the first thing is just acknowledging that that's going to happen. You know, that as unpleasant as it is, you know, you are going to experience things in your life that um, will go away before you want them to go away. And, you know, the only way to get through that is to have it happen to you once or twice and hopefully, um, you know, give yourself a, a little bit of a tough hide uh, because not to hope, not to use hope that it's not going to happen to you. It makes sense. I mean, you see in these situations that young people at their best tend to look at the future they could have and seize the moment, and old people at their more disappointing tend to focus on the past and what they've lost. Is that a fair That's, summary? I think it is a very fair summary. Um, it's a generalization, but, um, I, you know, look, I teach millennials, right? I have, first of all, I have two of them. My wife and I have two of them. <laughs> we... Um, but that's the cohort that I'm teaching, and it's always interesting to see what the caricature of millennials, how that compares to what I see with my own eyes. And yes, there are some things that drive me crazy, just as I'm sure there were some things about us that drove our parents crazy. But I, I do sense, um, you know, when they, I, I do sense a desire and to to make things better um, and the ability to do so that you know that my kids uh, and I think a lot of these students really do believe that they can do better I think they, they feel very handicapped by the, the hand they were dealt you know by our generation um, but there is a I don't know I see this kind of can-do and optimism that I think a lot of uh, the, you know the characterizations of Millennials uh, tends to overlook. Larry Kamer, are there significant matters relating to leadership and communications about which you've changed your mind over time? I'm in the process of changing my mind right now about the very basic, uh, you know, that, that we've assumed that our leaders want to solve problems or that our leaders are going to put life, human life ahead of everything else. So um, we're seeing right now that that's 
that you know there are variations or variances about crisis management. Um, how do you think about doing it? Um, you may well have uh, people in charge um, who don't want to put it to an end or who want to use it to their advantage or want to, um, you know, promote all kinds of false information. You know, how do we have our eyes open for that? Um, you know, because we can't just assume that, that we can't make those basic assumptions about crisis management anymore, that, that leaders want to get us out of it, you know, that they're going to give us information to help us make informed choices, uh, that they're not going to try and capitalize on, on chaos for their own benefit. So I would say right now I'm trying to figure out how to think about stuff, even as we work with clients who are dealing with dealing with crises and trying to educate you know my students on how to think about this stuff. Well, one thing perhaps that doesn't change is a wisdom or an insight of centuries that character is destiny. Yeah, well, that's is for sure. Let's talk uh, in closing a few quick questions. Larry Kamer, Claire Booth Luce famously instructed John Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? Uh, that's a really, that's, a, that's the hardest question you've asked me. That is absolutely the hardest question. I would say, um, You know that that this is somebody who that really tried to help people be prepared. Um, you know, understand their limitations, uh, understand opportunities, and to do it in a you know in a humane in a humane way. And Larry Kamer, how can listeners best follow and connect with you on social media? So um, I'm at at Larry Kamer on Twitter. That's L-A-R-R-Y-K-A-M-E-R. Uh, I am um, on Facebook. My company, Kamer Consulting Group, has a Facebook page. And um, lately, uh, I've gone into the podcast world, and I would encourage people to listen to The Deep Dive with Larry Kamer, which is on Apple Podcasts or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Larry Kamer, thank you so much. It's been a delight to have you with us, and I'm honored to call you a friend and colleague as well as someone that I, along with many, many others, look to for leadership and perspective. Well, Jim Strock, thank you for doing this podcast, and thanks for always saying yes when I ask you to come teach my class because you know I'm going to come back to you again. Uh, and uh, maybe the next time we talk, it'll be in person. Sounds wonderful. Thank you again, and thank you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send us ideas for future guests and topics, and follow us on Twitter at James Strzok, or connect via our website, servetolead.org. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.